I'm Cinder Niemela, and along with Charlotte Gilmano, welcome to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. I believe the most powerful gifts you can give yourself is time to reflect on your talents and experience, and then have the wisdom to act with confidence and grace. This podcast is for entrepreneurs, leaders, and individuals who want to thrive in work and life. Your journey to being connected and inspired by the world around you starts right now. Hello, my guest today is Karsten Drath. Karsten is joining us from Heidelberg, Germany. My mission is to interview 100 people from 100 countries who are making a positive social impact. Karsten certainly matches this profile. Karsten is navigating the globe by bike to raise money for the resilience of young people. During our interview, Karsten will share with us how ZIS, a nonprofit organization, gives scholarships for study trips to young adults between 16 and 20. When Karsten was a teen, he received a scholarship to work on a whaling station in Iceland and study scientific whaling. 20 years later, Karsten rekindled his passion for the ZIS organization and combined it with his love of endurance sports. His goal is to circumnavigate the earth by bike in 10 annual three-week rides. In the show notes, I've included additional details with itineraries if you'd like to meet up with Karsten or contribute to his campaign. Karsten is a leadership coach and expert on resilience with an extensive 16-year career in international consulting and leadership. Karsten has a very special passion and commitment to learning. He's navigated his career through engineering, business, an executive MBA from the Kellogg School of Management in Chicago, and he's an executive coach and psychotherapist. Karsten has written several books and articles on the subject of coaching, resilience, and leadership. These books include Coaching and Its Roots, Resilience in Corporate Leadership, Resilient Leadership, and Rules of Success. In the show notes, you'll find his bio and links to any of the resources that he mentions during today's interview. Karsten, welcome to the call. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I contacted you about a year ago and you were just about to embark on a long bike trip then. <laughs> and now I think you're about to embark on a very similar trip. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. What I found is that purpose is a very important thing when you go through tough times. And so I really looked for things that, that really touch me deep inside and, and connect with me and, and give me energy. And I was, I was thinking how to combine all this. On the, on the one hand side, I do like sports, but I don't like to be away from the family too much. And then something occurred to me. And, and when, when I was a lot younger than, than now, uh, I think it was when I was uh, 16 or 17, I came across an organization um, who gives away study grants to young people. The study grant says you, you have to study a topic that you choose for yourself. You have to stay abroad for at least a month or longer. You're not allowed to take own money with you and you have to travel alone. And all of that is pointed towards so that you are open and that you need to reach out to people and connect with people and really get, get to know them. One of my trips was about scientific whaling in Iceland. And the money that you get is, uh, was at, at that time the equivalent of $300. So $300 is not much, right? There's no way in hell, even 30 years ago, to get to Iceland with $300. So you need to be creative. So I reached out to the embassy and asked them, can you take me on a ship to Iceland for no fare? And they said, no. And, and that. <laughs> again and then they said no and then i kept on asking and eventually said here's the number of our i'm not sure what the right term is it's like an ambassador something like that mm -hmm. um in in the north of germany call the guy he has a place on the ship for you and please never call us again <laughs> and uh, so i was there in iceland and then the next step was that I was about to be deported because I was seen as a refugee. Can you believe that? Oh, no. Why? Because you came on a ship? Exactly. And I didn't have enough funds to afford the trip back, right? Oh. 
and uh, so I, I was I was asked to stay on the ship until I could I was able to prove that I have a legitimate interest to be there. And that's a good thing about this organization. It it, it forces the students to prepare. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had an invitation letter from the Ministry of Fishery, and uh, but the, the, this was at home. And we remember 30 years ago, uh, there was no email, there was no mobile phone. I was on this ship. And so my parents had to go to the post office to fax the document to Iceland, to the, to the um, embassy. That was a big thing, right? And so eventually I, I was not deported and I developed a relationship to um, an employee of the German embassy in Reykjavik in Iceland. And after that crisis had been, has been over, I asked her, you know what? I read an article of, your, of the state president of Iceland uh, about whaling. Do you think I could have an interview with her? And she looked at me like, I'm not quite sure what you, young man, what you have taken, but you should take less. But <laughs> smiled and said, you know what, I'll try. And I think two or three days later, if I recall correctly, I had the interview and, you know, I had a, an official interview with the state president of Iceland on the topic of scientific whaling. And for me, that was life-changing you know you can actually turn a crisis around into something that you wouldn't have imagined to be possible at all and i it you know i forgot all of that uh, for for many many years and it, it really dawned on me in the in the last couple of years how important these things had been for my development and so i said okay here's my plan i want to bike long distances and with this, I want to, with the contacts that I have to companies, I want to raise money in order to be able to finance scholarships of this organization, which is called CIS, Z-I-S. Mm. And two years ago, I started my first trip from Heidelberg, where I live, to uh, Verona in Italy. That was 1,000 kilometers, and I enjoyed that. That was great. And then last year, I did 2,500 kilometers from uh, Heidelberg to the Mediterranean Sea in France, then over to uh, Italy and then back across the Alps. And so it was like a, a full circle tour. And I, with these two tours, I was able to raise the equivalent of $4,500. No, I'm, I'm sorry, $45,000. Okay, that's better. That's better, right? Uh, so with these two tours, I was able to raise the equivalent of uh, $45,000. US And that's translates into, I think, more than 70 scholarships that I could fund. And so I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. And also from my resilience research, what I know is that having a plan, having something that you really want to achieve is really, really important. Over the years, I've gained the confidence to say, what I want to do within the next eight years is to cycle around the world on a bike, three weeks, every year that's something that i can afford then next year start or start where you've stopped the last year so mm. this year i'm i'm cycling to the atlantic coast to lisboa in portugal um, and then the year after i will cycle from san francisco to denver colorado and then from denver via chicago to new york, new york city and then on to moscow and and all the asian asian routes and that gives me goosebumps if I think about it and it's it's it really intrigues me when I'm down when things don't go right when when something is wrong with health or the family or with the business I I observe myself thinking about this trip and planning a little bit and and all of a sudden my mood gets better and I have more energy and it's really inspirational for me that's an awesome story do you have other people joining you or are you alone I'm alone. I'm very open for others to join me. But meanwhile, the distances that I travel is a bit, you know, scaring people off. And also, I really like to be alone. I, I, I mean, it's, it's not that I, I meet people along the way, but then we meet, we talk, we have lunch together, and then we part ways. Or I have, you know, some friends that really come to where I am and cycle with me for a day or two. But the design is that you are alone because you are more open to other people and you also experience the world in a different way. I love it. I love it. Well, you mentioned your book, Resilient Leadership and the work that you did. And I, I really love that book. And some of the reasons why I love the book is because you pack in a lot of research the first half to me is a little bit like an annotated bibliography, but it's written in English. <laughs> but you, you can draw the 
connections between understanding yourself and these other themes like beliefs and energy and how we deal with crisis and satisfaction and fulfillment and what do they have to do with resilience. I just love that first part of the book where you talk about the research between 1921 and current and provide a lot of bibliography for it. And then in the second half, when you start that in the first half as well, is, is applying these concepts to developing resilience in yourself for a more fulfilling and joyful life. So mm-hmm. what I'd like you to do is talk a little bit about what compelled you to uh, write this book? Because it was a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Well, um, thank you, first of all. Before I became a coach and a psychotherapist, I was a manager and I was, I was running an, an organization um, of 200 people and, you know, the, the, the regular stuff, a lot of change, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of conflicts and escalations. And, and at one point I was traveling like heavily eight flights a week, um, had different teams and different continents and I loved it. Um, and I, you know, I, I had two baby girls born um, during that time, I did an executive MBA. I did triathlons, did an Ironman. And uh, so I did all kinds of crazy things. And I was very driven by the need to prove others what I'm capable of. And that was rooted in a deep uh, sense of uncertainty, uh, which I didn't know at that time. Uh, I just did what I did, right? And the, where was the uncertainty coming from? I, I think it came back from childhood, really, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, um, that, like that, having that feeling of being uncertain if you're good enough, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. And for me, my way of coping with that was to uh, translate that into working hard. I'm not very smart, but what I can do is I can work hard. And um, so that was my way of attacking things. And eventually I did the Ironman, you know, and all of that. Um, but it, it only was good for a minute. And then I was looking for the next target. And that resulted in a situation where at one fine day, I woke up and had lost a large degree of my hearing on one ear. That was very hard because it was absolutely uncertain if the hearing would come back. Um, and you only notice that hearing is really important for you if you lose it. Um, and, and I was taken off the field. So my doctor told me, you have to stay at home, no emails, no phone calls. Um, and I was, you know, I was in charge of 200 people and I felt very much in charge. And because I was so important, I also constructed everything so that I was the center of gravitation. Mm-hmm. And so I really feel it, uh, absolutely uneasy about the entire situation, a total loss of control. And um, so that in hindsight, that was the first time in my life where I couldn't solve a problem with working harder and sleeping less. That was my standard approach. And um, then fast forward a couple of years, I had left the corporate world and uh, decided to become a trained coach. And then again, a couple of years later, I really decided to change my career and to join Leadership Choices, which is the company I'm now uh, one of the managing partners of. And um, I, I dedicated one year to say, because if I'm now going to have this career and I'm a German engineer, which is by training, you know, which is the stereotypical, I want it profound. I really want to know why and, and how things are connected. I said, I, I really want to learn uh, this a bit better than just with a coaching training. And I decided to get trained and certified as a psychotherapist. So I went back to school for a year and uh, part of this part of the training was a clinical internship where you're one of the counselors working in a in a clinic with real patients and uh, because of my you know already at that time gray hair people thought I'm competent which is a total mix up of things but um they you know let me very close to the patients and I talked to them and I was I was very deeply um humbled by the fact that they were just like me. I mean, I didn't see any major difference uh, why they are there with, you know, anxiety disorder, depression, burnout, um, substance abuse. And I was on the counseling side. For me, this was really a timing thing. Um, I was, you know, I had just changed things a bit earlier and, and maybe a bit was a bit luckier. 
And then I came across this term resilience. And I recall it was an article in the Harvard Business Review by uh, Daniel Coutu. And I was really, I was really struck um, and electrified because I really wanted to understand this. And um, so I started grinding my teeth into it. It was very lofty written. It was really concrete what it is and, and what it's composed of. And then I started my engineering thing. And I, I really wanted to deconstruct the term. And I looked into the models that were there. And I only found models that were not wrong, but they were like from the 1950s. Um, so they were... They were right, but they were not including everything that we know today. So 10 years ago, I started researching and, and, and trying to find out what is in there, what, what else contributes, what kind of studies there are. And so I really took a very, very broad approach. And um, then I came up with the model of the uh, spheres of resilience. Um, and uh, today this has evolved into the FIRE model, factors improving resilience effectiveness, trying to combine all levers that improve the effectiveness of our capability to cope with adversity um, in one model that is not exclusive. It, the intention is not to say this is better and true and all the others are wrong and, and not so good. The idea was really to say this is one framework and you can plug a lot of other things into it and it just still makes sense. So the idea was to be open in the design. And uh, yeah, this was the reason, uh, you know, this was the reason for the book. And for me, when I write a book, um, it typically has two, there's two things that are there. One is the topic really interests me and I cannot really give a profound answer yet. Mm -hmm. And then I have a tendency to grind my teeth into this and, and to really come up with uh, something which I find is, good enough um, to, to really be uh, impactful. And so the model has proven very stable in the latest version um, of, so my latest book, I've added one additional sphere of mental agility to it because I found that this was really missing in the original model. But for me, this still, this still holds true. It's, it's, it's very open, very applicable. And if you work through these spheres, you really have a very good, understanding of where you stand with your own level of resilience in life. Oh, that's so interesting. So these protective factors of individual resilience, you call them the spheres of individual resilience. They're on page 36 of the book. Again, <laughs> I highly recommend people uh, get it if they are interested in this topic. Those factors that you had listed in the book were trustworthy relationships, role models, responsibility, realistic expectations, self-confidence, which I think is one of the first things to go when a person is in a situation where they're under stress. And then the last one that you had in the book was personality. Uh -huh. What is the um, additional one? Is that mental agility is the additional one? Yeah. So if you look at the model of the spheres, mm -hmm. it really starts on the inside with personality. So the idea there is uh, obviously, resilience is something that you can learn, but the truth is also that the way our soul is structured, if you want, our behavior preferences are set. There's also a, a, a preference, uh, behavior preferences that correlate with the higher ability to cope with stress or unforeseen events. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so if people are familiar, for example, with the five-factor model um, or with the theory of the big fives, um, if you think of the first three of them, NEO, neuroticism, extroversion, and openness for experiences or originality, uh, there is a, a high body or a large body of research that would suggest that low values for N, high values for E, and high values for O correlate with a high raw resilience. We call this raw resilience because this is nothing that we have acquired. This is something that we are we're not born with, but we come out of our adolescence with it. You know, it, it is part of our personality, really. And as a result, some people find it easier than others to cope with crisis. And then there's the other element of, of resilience, which really has to do with learning. So mm -hmm. there's personality, then there's biography. So this is how we have processed the, our life and, and the events that, that life has, you know, played to us and, and how have we dealt with it. Um, that leaves, leaves us to attitude. 
So what is the real attitude that I have when, when you know, the going gets tough? Am I going into victim mode? Am I going into shaper mode? What are typical patterns? What are beliefs that kick in that I have acquired in my childhood and then still play a role today? Um, then uh, the next thing is, so if, to a degree, you can see a human as a, as a biological battery. So we charge up at night or when we rest. And then we use our energy and some things take away energy, some other things give us energy. And how do I de deal with my charging um, of my battery? How can I make sure that my energy lasts enough time and that, I, that I'm wise in using it? Mm -hmm. um, the next level is uh, mind-body access. So how do, we, how do we take into account that our body influences our thoughts, our, our emotions, and how can I make use of that? So for example, sleeping, exercising, uh, nutrition, meditation, these kinds of things. Then the next uh, layer is, is really about authentic relationships. So what are, who is my personal supervisory board that I allow very close um, next to me that I open up and make myself vulnerable to, even if I may not be able to be vulnerable to everybody else, but at least to those couple of people um, that I open up to and share my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions. And then the, the last one being purpose or meaning. So what really drives me? Why do I do all this? How is this connected to something that is larger than me, larger than my annual bonus plan? That was the first iteration, really. And then the, the last bit that I added was mental agility, which really has to do with the fact that things are changing. And there's no reason to believe that they will, the speed of change will decrease anytime soon. And that we need to learn to deal with new normals, with uh, changed paradigms, with changed environments and that that this is a skill that also can be trained so so this is really the model going forward let's use a specific example let's say that we have a leader who is fairly high in the organization you know has an executive role but we always report to someone else so mm -hmm. they're reporting to someone else who is very demanding constantly shifting priorities maybe abusive in that they're on call 24 seven. Mm -hmm. And this person is beginning to experience the signs of stress, mm -hmm. um, whether it physically, emotionally, relationally. Mm -hmm. how, would, how would you go through this model or would you go through this model to, for this person to begin to see a more positive way out? Yeah, so uh, you just really mentioned concrete cases. Um, so it really depends um, at what point in time these people show up. Um, but one particular case, um, so exactly the situation like you described, mm -hmm. and this person was getting maybe five hours of sleep, uh, was working on the weekends, severely overweight, um, and in essence, he had given up in the sense of, you know, I, I almost don't deserve to be healthy or fit or mm. have enough sleep because I have this boss and I have this important role. And if you want to have that, you need to comply. So mm -hmm. we worked on this belief, if that is really true. And uh, slowly started with increasing the level of sleep and increasing the level of saying no, for example, of not working on the weekend. Because if you have somebody who is very demanding, uh, oftentimes they are demanding but not silly. Um, and sometimes it's requi it requires to say no or to ask, are you re do you really want me to be on a call on a Sunday? Um, in order to see, to see you know, if that is really something that is absolutely necessary or if it's something that is optional because they don't have a life and they don't care mm -hmm. and over it it took it took some time but eventually uh he got back to eight hours of sleep um he got back to working only half a day on the weekends he uh, lost weight he started sports again and eventually his energy level uh rose and with this he could actually work on his behavior because there were things 
that made his manager believe that he was not on top of things. And these were communication patterns. So we worked on, the next thing was, we worked on communication patterns. We worked on anticipation or anticipating what are the drivers of this leader and how can you feed this driver so that this person is content and is, is getting off your back because he's actually concerned that you're not, not on top of your business and that could make him look bad. So we work, but then we first needed to have this uh, ability to actually change behavior. And if you're out of your resources, there is no capability left. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then we came to the next thing, uh, which was really around uh, purpose. So what is it that makes his job really, he loves his job. I mean, that's a crazy thing. Even if the boss is totally dysfunctional, uh, this individual absolutely loves his job, loves the people, loves the company, so absolutely loyal. And what do you need so that this is really filled with purpose despite a dysfunctional boss? And I'm not saying that this is easy and I'm not saying that this works all the time, but uh, he's now in a totally different place uh, in his career and also in his private life. This for me is a, is a nice example of the model in practice. Yes, yeah, it absolutely is. You're taking care of the, the battery first. That's the battery that drives everything else. That's the foundation. And um, especially when we talk about mental agility. So, um, when I, so I often run workshops. And when we talk about mental agility, so the capability of adjusting to a new normal, mm -hmm. that is something that is directly linked to your level of resources or your level of energy. If you're, if you're out of energy, how could you learn to be in a new industry how can you learn to be self-employed or how can you learn mandarin or whatever it's, it's it's extremely hard right so the battery it's it's a bit like the maslow's pyramid of needs just in a different context you need to start at the bottom and then you can climb up the ladder that's excellent i think people often start with attitude so I've got a boss who is being very demanding or difficult, or I'm in a situation that's difficult and demanding. And so I'm just going to change my attitude. I'm going to uh -huh. start in the middle uh -huh. and it doesn't work. And then people get frustrated. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Attitude plays a role. It plays a huge role. So my wife, for example, she also went through cancer, through breast cancer. Um, that was eight years ago. And we know from research that the more severe a disease is or a situation is, the more important the, uh, is the attitude, right? Mm -hmm. So um, in medicine, we, we know this through the placebo effect, right? Placebo effect means only that something works because you believe it works, because actually there's no active ingredient. And we know, again, from research that the placebo effect is higher if the treatment to a, to a disease is very severe and has a lot of side effects, right? Like cancer, like chemotherapy or radiation. Um, but if somebody in this situation comes to you and says, hey, I've read a book that says you need to work on your attitude, pal. So suck it up and get over it. You know, just you need to think positive. That's obviously not helpful, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so the art is how do I actually influence my attitude? How do I get from, I call it victim mode or martyr mode, uh, into shaper mode. And that is not meant to be ironical. I, I, it plays a role. I've been, in, I've been in victim mode when I got fired from Bombardier for six months, if not longer. I've actually, I've, I've written a book in victim mode, which is a horrible thing because you are feeling a little bit ashamed about the stuff that you wrote there. But the question is, how do you get out of it? The, the one thing that is really working beautifully uh, to get out of that is gratitude. It is really interesting, and this is something that I, I practice with the people in my workshops. If you think about things that you're really grateful for that happened today or that are in your life, um, and these are the things that you have not achieved by yourself. They have been, they came to you through whatever you believe, through God or through fate or through luck like your partner, your family, your job, uh, your health, your education, all of that. And you then go back to complaining about life. People start laughing because they know they can complain about life, but they can't now. This is the real interesting thing in our brain. Gratitude is really a kind of an antidote that, that works 
uh, actively against victim mode. It is not preventing it from happening, but it shortens the time that we are in victim mode. And there's also uh, fundamental research done at the Penn State University is that if you have this gratitude, practice this gratitude on a regular basis over a period of nine weeks, it has visible effects against the control group on your emotional stability over a period of 24 months. And this is something that doesn't cost you a penny. To a degree, gratitude is something that we practice when we are religious, but many people are not religious anymore or it is not a resource for them anymore. So, so to a degree, we bring the elements of things, of, of traditions of wisdom back into the field through these interventions that have to do with resilience. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, I really like that explanation. Rules of success. What is the link between this book, Resilient Leadership, and Rules of Success? I've been thinking about what success really is. If I am successful or if somebody else is successful, if my clients are successful. And I found that there is a, a superficial answer to that. And that has to do with the money that you have on your bank account, the size of your house and the size of your car and, and uh, who you're with and which, which social you know, societal class you're interacting with. Then there's also other levels. So I, I first try to understand what success really is. So there's obviously an objective component to it that there needs to be a certain degree of freedom. Um, and that has to do with financial, the availability of financial funds. But the, the, the interesting thing is that this is largely driven by the peer group that you choose for yourself. So, for example, if you look at millionaires, a millionaire will always know a millionaire who has more millions. And a billionaire will always have somebody to look up to uh, who has even more billions on his bank account. And the question is, what peer group that you choose yourself to compare with? And then there's the other element uh, of, of success. And that has to do, to which degree can you actually live your values, to which degree can you be true to what is really, really important to yourself? So this is the more subjective components of success. And then I, I looked into what makes successful careers. And I mean, one of the more traditional ways of research is to look at very successful companies or very successful people, be it employed managers or be it investors or be it entrepreneurs, and look at what made them successful. No big surprise, one of the situations that came up with that success looks very, very different from the outside than it looks from the inside. From the outside, we think there's no wonder that Warren Buffett is the richest man in the world. He was destined to be like that. It was always kind of pre-written and he had to be and it was a straight thing. And then if you look into the biography of Warren Buffett, well, that's not quite the case. There were several situations in his life where he was facing failure, where he was facing adversity, right? And how did he deal with that? Um, or if you take other uh, important or famous people like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Elon Musk or uh, Jeff Bezos, they all had this situation. So one key ingredient in the formula of success next to your skills, your dedication, your willpower, your motivation, your fit, the fit and the element of luck is resilience. How do you deal with setbacks? So this was for me another way to convey the message of, of um, you know, what really makes us live a life that we really want to live as opposed to something that is kind of the leftovers um, that we think we, we deserve. Mm. Yeah, that's a wonderful description. It's occurring to me, you started out by telling the story of going to Iceland and mm -hmm. being inspired to research whaling and how resourceful you were to get there, to interview the president, and that this resourcefulness has reawakened in you in the last few years. Mm. Uh, the time in between, from the time you were 17 and went to Iceland to the last few years when, when you've um, really gotten into coaching and understanding human emotions and what it means to be human, where was your resourcefulness in between? Hmm. That's a very good question. Um, 
I certainly can recall one situation uh, when I was working at Dell. I was the managing director of the consulting unit of Dell for EMEA. It's a great company. Michael Dell is a great human being, uh, but I just felt that I was at the wrong spot. I really loved working with people. As a consultant, I really want to understand what the client needs and try to tailor a solution to his or her needs. And, and Dell had a totally different understanding of what consulting uh, is or, or should be. And so I really felt in the wrong place. And, and, but I was in charge of a team, uh, which I had also partially built up. So there was an element of loyalty. And at that time, my resourcefulness was pretty low. I was, I was away uh, pretty much every week, the full week. Um, I was in a different city. And I didn't enjoy what I did. And I got good money for it. So it was really like a golden cage. And I, I lived in this golden cage for four years. And I was really suffering. You know, I was smoking at that time. It, it wasn't a good space. But on the other hand, you know, you have this lifestyle. I have four kids, luckily. A wife, obviously. And, and uh, you know, family and, and a dog and cars and all of that. And, and so you need the money to a certain degree. And you need the safety. And then to think about now, change your career, start something where you are starting from zero, where you have no reputation, uh, where there's no books or nothing. That was a big thing for me, really. And it was, I remember the last year, uh, my wife had to, you know, had a lot of counseling to do with me to, you know, to help me through this period before I really was ready to, to jump. So that was a period where my resourcefulness was lower but there were also other periods where i'm really grateful that for the most part of my corporate career i really love what i did because i'm driven by learning mm -hmm. so i started off as a cabinet maker as a woodworker i became an engineer to find out i'm a terrible engineer i then became an mba then a manager then a coach then a psychotherapist. So all of that stuff is, and it really drives me because I can learn. So as long as I can learn stuff, I'm pretty, and it interests me, of course. Um, I'm, I'm very happy where I am. Mm, that's wonderful. What advice would you give uh, someone who's listening who might be in the same place? Just mm. feeling very inspired or fulfilled in their current role? Yeah, I, I know precisely how that feels. So I, I think what is really, really important is to listen to the own inner voice. This inner voice, in, if you look in, in you know, the outlook calendars of many, many people, is it's so much pushed down or overtoned with the noise of every day and calls and, and weekend activities so that there's no way that you can actually listen to what your inner voice is trying to tell you. So I, I would suggest to make space for that and really uh, go on to a quest to find out what is it that really drives you. And that can take years. It, it's, not, it's nothing that you find out over a weekend or, you know, going for a walk and then you have it. And it, it, it takes turns. And then the next thing is that comes up is a gazillion reasons why it will not work, <laughs> uh, why you can't jump, why it's important, impossible. And, and uh, it's insane. And then you have friends that will tell you exactly the same because they have, they have their own fears why they are not jumping and they are, why they limit themselves to the life that they think they are entitled to and not more. Um, so there's all these people that say, no, 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 you can't do it. You can't do it. And I think it is good to have these voices, but then also let them sit aside and hear on your own inner voice and, and see. Uh, sometimes you can turn things around where you are and you just change the way of how you do things. This is definitely possible. Um, I've seen it many, many times. So it is not always required to change something in the outside. Sometimes it's the right thing to change something on the inside. And then keep up, uh, keep it up and, and, and continue until you really found something that you think really, you know, makes your heart sing or that really where you get a different energy than just of the energy of I reached my, my target, I get my bonus and yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but really something that touches you inside. Yeah, it's, some, it's a process, but it's a, it's a process that's very much worthwhile. 
Mm, yes, it's reminding me of the story that you have in the book of Viktor Frankl. Mm -hmm. uh, it was early on, and he talks about this insight that he got. It kind of seemed like a flash of insight. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It was about meaning and purpose, and he started imagining himself giving lectures at schools on mm -hmm. the psychology of surviving in a uh, prisoner of war camp. That's what you're saying is find that thing within you, whether it's uh -huh. or doing research on whales or whatever it is. And often it is if we look to our way past and what we were interested in when we were younger. And yeah. yeah. And to um, then begin to imagine it. And at first, I think, Perhaps the cynic can say, well, you know, you're just creating this artificial world that you're stepping into. The reality is you're in this prisoner of war camp and you're starving to death and you're being worked and, you know, death is going to face you at any moment. But it goes back to your model and working with what you have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do I choose to be driven by fear mm -hmm. or do I choose to be driven by what's possible or opportunity or growth or trying to become a better version of myself. And um, I think that that is the, the fundamental decision. Is it because I can't have anything else and I maybe don't even deserve anything better? Or is it because I can actually choose and I can create or co-create what I want to have as a life for myself? And you can believe in either of the two paradigms and you will find a lot of evidence for both, right? You, nobody can prove that this really works. But if you start to working from this paradigm of opportunity and growth and possibility, all of a sudden things happen that are not normal. So for example, uh, you know, when you do this, going back to this organization I'm raising money for, there is a, a, a fixed term which is called the cis fortune so that happens to people the young people that travel and you know in the moment of biggest desperation when somebody had stolen their luggage or they try to reach somebody and this person isn't there all of a sudden out of the blue something comes somebody comes and you know holds up their hand and say can i help you the doors open up and then things change and almost everybody who really uh, went on a leap of faith with this trip with something that was a bit risky they they report that all of a sudden once you believe that this could work all of a sudden doors opened up and maybe not exactly that worked out but something very very close or even better that's what i mean with this mm. oh that's actually that's reminding me of something that happened to me i spent a year and a half living in england and spain on my own took a year and a half off from college and then when I ran out of money, I still had my plane ticket and I'm sitting at JFK. I don't know anyone anymore who lives in New York. My father's even moved to Dallas, wondering what I'm going to do next, but not afraid. And I looked up and my father walks by. No way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It still gives me chills. Wow. <laughs> yes. When you're on your path, when you give up control. Yeah. To control the situation, mm -hmm. the answer is there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Th thank you for reminding me of that. I haven't thought of that in a while. That's a great story, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I know my father, for a long time, he would tell that story and he'd, he'd say, what were you thinking? What were you going to do? Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't know, dad. I just trusted that uh, it was going to work out. Yeah. And I honestly, when I think about it, I don't know how long I was there. I, I mm -hmm. don't think it was a day. It wasn't 24 hours. It wasn't very long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I have similar situation. So um, when I was in Iceland, uh, I, I lived on a camping ground to save money. And I met a Swiss uh, guy. Joseph was his name. And uh, he came to Iceland every year for half a year. And he, he walked the island and he pushed a yellow bicycle he really pushed it across mm -hmm. the island with all his luggage and he was very famous kind of because he was the first one the first tourist to come and the last one to leave and i, I had lost a track of his address and uh, so i really wanted to found find the guy and i remembered tiny little things but i didn't have the address so 
uh, I went to Switzerland and I, I hiked through different villages where I thought this guy lived and showed around the pictures and nobody knew him. And then I was there with my girlfriend. It was her birthday. It was in April and it was snowing still. And we were in a tent. So we were crazy and young. Or I was crazy. Um, and, and then she said, you know what? It's my birthday today. We don't do this hiking thing, searching for Joseph. I just want to uh, have a nice little walk at this river here. So we went alongside the river. And there was, it was raining, it wasn't a nice day, and, and there was only one guy in the distance. And I said, you know, just to be safe, uh, I want to, you know, approach the guy. And I approached him, and it was Joseph. Oh, my God. And uh, he had never been there. He had, you know, he had just felt the strong need to come to this place and walk this river. And, uh, and so we met. Mm -hmm. so. Talk about energy. It's, I love stories like that. Maybe that will be one of your future books. Maybe, maybe, yeah. <laughs> I love stories like that. Part of the reason why I'm interviewing people from different countries is because we are so similar. There are so many similarities, and I love to hear these, the stories and the, the approaches that, that you take. You hear about American politics. What are your perceptions of the wall? How can you help us understand what's going on here from your perspective in Germany? Okay, well, we certainly have some experiences with walls, you know. Yes, you do. Huh, that's a difficult question. Um, how do I answer that? In my last book, which is called The Resilient Organization and is only available in German, I asked myself, so how do systems become resilient mm -hmm. and what i mean for this how do we, how, do, how does a society or an organization or a company maintains two elements one is adaptability and the other one is robustness and also the capability to anticipate what's coming towards you and what actually contributes to this and um part of the, what i did as part of that is that i developed um, a, a model um, how systems can be categorized based on their primary motives. Mm. And um, so their primary motives, for example, and, and this is work that is not, nothing that I have come up with. This is going back to uh, Don Beck, Ken Wilber, uh, Claire Graves, um, Patrick Laloux. Um, so this is around what is it, deep inside you or deep inside a system that is really determining why it is there what's the right to exist so i think there's a particularity in in the u.s society where there's different elements in the society that work on different primary motives yeah mm -hmm. and and i think this is the tension and the 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 rupture i what i always would say uh, in the U.S. society that is, is showing that on the one hand side, there is a, a part of the society that is really postmodern, postmodern in the sense like we want to have an equilibrium be between performance and profit on the one hand side and values on the other hand side. And this is taking care of the of world peace, being out there, being, being in, in union with other countries. And then there's the other element of the U.S. society who's still stuck in the modern paradigm, which is about me first, uh, winning against the others, um, winners and losers, about uh, having isolated success as opposed to integrated success. And I think two paradigms, the gap between the two, that needs to be bridged. So mm -hmm. I see it more as a symptom. The, the wall is certainly not the root cause or the root problem. It is a symptom of a deep gap. I mean, we have the same gap in Germany. We have nobody who wants to build another wall, but we have people who want to say, who want, you know, who want all refugees to go home or um, all people that are not German to go home and that we are not part of the European Union anymore. So we have the same tendencies just with different symptoms. And I think what wants to happen there is the healing of the fear um, that is underneath that, the fear of these people who want to win at all costs because they actually have, are, are fearing that they will be 
the losers in the game. So if this is no longer a win or lose game, maybe then it can heal. That's a long answer. I'm not quite sure mm -hmm. if that, that's what you wanted to hear, but that's my thinking around it. Oh, thank you for that. It's, it's very helpful to hear an objective and really thoughtful response to that. And it does remind me of the pages in your book, Resilient Leadership, that talks about polarities uh -huh. and how resilient leaders are able to lead through polarities. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I highly, I just highly recommend that people get this book, Resilient Leadership. Karsten, I will include in the show notes how to get a hold of you. What is the best way for people to get hold of you if they want to talk more about anything that you've discussed today? Oh, you can find me on LinkedIn and uh, just, just send me a note and I'll be sure in getting back to you. Great. And I'll include that. My last question for you is, what's one thing that you know now you wish you knew earlier? Oh my gosh, Cinder, you have these good questions. Um... I think it has to do with being a good dad. So at one point in my life, I got divorced from my first wife and uh, I left my family. I think at that point, the, the notion of not being good enough also translated into not being a good enough dad because I left my kids or destroyed the family or, or whatever. And now we have a wonderful relationship, uh, my, my daughters and I. It's a different relationship than to my ex-wife, to their mother. Both relationships are equally good, though, and we also have a good adult relationship about being parents. So I think that would have helped me to be a bit less fearful or feel bad about uh, following my heart and being assured that it's still possible to be a good father, a good dad that is really caring and loving, even though you're not physically present and that you are living in a different town and all of that. Mm, that is a great one. And that's what I hear a lot of people say that they're coming to coaching because they realize they want to be a good dad or a good mom. They're concerned about their children. I appreciate that. I think that's going to resonate for a lot of people as well. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it, Cinder. Thank you very I'm much. Cinder Niela, oh, you're and so you've welcome. been listening to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope these conversations illuminate your path to your highest potential. For show notes and links to resources mentioned during today's episode, please go to inspiredwisdom.us. You can also follow Inspired Wisdom on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, Design a fulfilling and prosperous life that engages your talents and passions.